Father, thank you um, for these people. Thank you for this space. Thank you for all the people who are cooking and teaching our kids and watching children. And um, thank you for the air conditioning in this building. Jesus, as we come tonight, I want to just make a a few statements about who we are to you. Um, As we come to worship you, we are people who are excited to be here. We're people who are just trying to hold it together in our heads. We're people who have a lot of anxiety. Um, We're people who uh, come from all different backgrounds. Some of us are struggling to believe. Some of us are holding on to our faith tightly. But we're here in this space, and we're we want to, to learn about you and we want to figure this out and we want to understand. And so we ask that you would um, give us the courage through your spirit to believe what is true and to push out what is false um, and that you would calm our fears and that you would strengthen our faith. Um, and I ask that in your holy name, Jesus. Amen. So before I was... Uh, Sorry, Mike, you're going to stay down there. Um, Before I was a pastor, many, many years ago, I was a mental health counselor at Tucson General Hospital. So this would be in the mid-90s, and I worked in geriatric psych. Now, there's a, a couple unimportant facts that you should know about me at this time. One unimportant fact was that my driver's license had it expired. Um, Another unimportant fact is I never carried my insurance in my car. Another unimportant fact is that the registration was six months past due on my car, on my gold Honda Accord. Um, And I worked night shift. So one day I stumbled out of the hospital and, and, and before I tell you what happened, I suspect that if you were my friend, you would have told me, look, dude, if you don't get your license, you know, reinstated and carry your insurance in your car and keep your tags up to date, eventually a policeman is going to pull you over and it's going to cost you a lot of money. And I would have shook my head and said, but I have to sleep during the day and I work this hard job and I have lots of reasons for you as to why I couldn't do any of that at the time. So I stumble out of Tucson General in the morning and I get in my car and I pull up to turn left onto Campbell and across from me pulls up a policeman. And I think for a moment as the light is red, as I'm going to turn left, and he's definitely going to turn right in behind me, I could look like I forgot something and back up and go run into the hospital for a while. And then, but I thought, well, that'll look suspicious. So I, I'm tired and I need to go home. So I just turned, and the policeman pulled behind me, and he pulled me over. And he said, dude, <laughs> that gave me a lot of tickets. And said, you can't drive this car, but I'm going to let you pull your car into the parking lot. And then you need to get someone to come drive it. But better yet, someone should tow it. Um, And you can't drive it. So I said, okay, I won't drive it. And I just sat in my car and he left and I went to sleep for a while. And then I drove the back streets home. And yes, I eventually got all that taken care of. Now, 
recently, like this last week, I was watching a movie called Going Out in Style. I don't know if you guys have seen this movie. It's about three old guys who uh, rob a bank. And the reason they rob the bank is the bank is uh, in collusion with the company they worked for for 30 years and is basically take, stealing their pensions. So they're going to rob the bank. But they're only going to rob the bank for the exact amount of their pensions over however they figure they're going to live. Um, so they have some number for that. Uh, but there's a scene where Michael Caine, one of the older guys, is going to the bank manager and he brings a yellow slip, uh, like an envelope in a yellow, um, yeah, a yellow envelope. And he says, hey, like, I got this and it says I'm behind on my mortgage, which I am, and, it, and my mortgage has doubled. And the bank manager is like, oh, don't worry. That's just the yellow envelope. When you get the red envelope, that's when you're in trouble, right? The red envelope is the one that you have to worry about because you have 30 days and then you have to get out of your house because we're foreclosing on it. So all of us have these things that I would call the small day of the Lord. The red envelope or the policeman who pulls across. And sometimes it's because of what we've done. Like we're the, that, there's an inevitable consequence to our behavior. Sometimes, like the poor guy who needs to rob the bank, people are doing things to him. He's not doing anything he shouldn't do, but there's still this moment in his life, right? So we all have these small days of the Lord. You know what they are, right? There are probably a few in the back of your head right now. Um, but all of us have one that's in common. And maybe we could call it the big day of the Lord, and that's death. It's one we all know, and it's coming, and we can't avoid it. Now, if we're an atheist, or if we're an agnostic, or if we're someone who follows any particular religion, or we follow Jesus, all of us at some level understand that death is some kind of judgment. If you're an atheist, there is your judgment. You die. And that's it. After 100 years or so, nobody cares who you are. And even if they do care a little bit about you, they've totally messed up your life. And it was nothing like you thought it was, like you lived it out. They have a whole new idea of what you did. Like, you mean nothing, right? And for the rest of us, like, we kind of have this sense, depending where we are on the spectrum, that something, some kind of consequence, to this life, to the things that we've decided to do, is present after death, right? We have that inevitable red envelope coming, and we all feel that. We all feel it. And we don't know what to do about it. Like, most of us are trying really hard to avoid death or push death further back or the anxieties of that, right? But it's coming. We don't know. The day of the Lord is coming. The little days of the Lord is just a taste of it all, but it's there. It's there. Now, we're in Zephaniah. Whoever has the clicky thing, they can just click it to the first uh, slide. There we go. Somebody reminded me today that the sermon series is called Zeph and Destruction. We're in Zephaniah. Um, we are in Zephaniah, and as we said, Zephaniah is a minor prophet, and we started it last week, and we went through all of chapter 1. 
And, and the thing about chapter 1 is it's just this very, very um, harsh judgment that falls on Israel and all the world. Uh, Israel is the, are the people of um, Jesus in the Old Testament, or people of God in the Old Testament. And it's just this consequence after consequence. But it's not just Israel. It's the whole earth that God is going to deal with. But there's this key verse in that chapter 1 that you probably should have remembered. And basically what that key verse, verse 7, is probably the one thing you should remember from Zephaniah chapter 1, was that in the midst of all these consequences, God says, be quiet. And literally in the Hebrew, it's almost as if God says, shh. And, and there's this anticipation as you're reading this that like it's kind of like the hearers are 10-year-olds. And they're like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like, you're sweeping away everything? Like, wait, I didn't do anything. Oh, no, 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 no. Let me explain why that happened. No, no, you can't be doing that, God. Like, that's not... And, and the thing that you hear in this pronouncement of judgment, dead center is, shh, be quiet before the day of the Lord. Shh, Listen. And so the thing that, that we felt and the thing that we were called to last week was that as we feel the weight of our own days of the Lord, those red slips and the policeman across the street who's going to pull us over, that God is calling us to just feel that and sh- not, not fix it, not give excuses for why, it's just to feel it and to feel the weightiness of the larger day of the Lord to feel it, to just sit in it for a while, to understand the gravity of what we've done and where our world is headed. Because that leads us in to Zephaniah chapter 2. Zephaniah chapter 2. So I don't remember what page it's on in your Bibles. I think it's 980-something. But it's three pages long. Um, and Zephaniah is what we call a minor prophet, and this is what he says in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And this is in response to all of this judgment. He says, Gather together, gather yourselves together, you shameful nation. Now some translations say, you nation without shame. So there's a little confusion in the language, but the NIV goes for you shameful nation. Before the decrees take effect and the day passes like windblown chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what He commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Now, I have this phrase up here, and this is the only notes I'll give you. This is the phrase I want you to hang on to. In the face of your red slip, and in the face of the policeman, and in the face of the day of the Lord, what we are called to is to gather and seek, and we will find protection and restoration. Yeah, so I just want you to hang on to this. Gather, seek, protection, restoration. In the midst of all of this, Before it all happens, God calls us to gather. He calls the people of Israel. He calls us to gather. Now, I want to talk about this idea of of gathering for a second. Why would God be so concerned with us getting together? 
Well, it's very interesting that in sociology, we figured out something that is common sense. And that is that if you take a person and you have them hang out with a bunch of bank robbers, it's very likely they'll rob a bank. But if you have a person go hang out with a bunch of people who feed people at a soup kitchen and who care for their neighbors, guess what? They'll probably go feed people at a soup kitchen and be kind to their neighbors. That we do what everybody else does around us. Now, there's this nature-nurture argument. Well, guess what? Nature-nurture only works for the first few years of your life. But the older and older you get, you know what influences more than anything? Not your genetics. Your environment. The people around you. So in the midst of the day of the Lord, the midst of judgment, the midst of the fear of dying and whatever there is next, God calls us to gather together. Now here's one of the reasons he calls us to gather together that makes us different as a community of God. Is that in the New Testament, God, Jesus says that wherever there are two or three people gathered in my name, there I am, right? That the presence of God is with God's people when they gather, okay? So that in itself, as we gather, changes the environment. But here's the thing. There's only one key to being a successful person in the world outside of living life with Jesus, and that is courage. You don't need anything else. All you need is courage. And guess what? You cannot get courage by yourself. You cannot sit in your room and be like, oh, I'm going to be courageous. I'm going to go do that thing. You know, I'm going to go outside and kill the zombies. No. Here's how it works. When you go gather with people and you are afraid and people say, I got your back, you have courage. When you see someone else is struggling and you come alongside them and you say, I've got your back, you both have courage. You put the Holy Spirit on top of that. And the reason that God is calling people to gather is because in the face of the consequences of our sin, in the face of judgment, we need courage. We need to gather together. Now Paul in Hebrews 10.25 goes further and he says, the sooner or the quicker the day of the Lord comes, the sooner it is, the more we should get together. Right? We should gather more and more as the day of the Lord comes closer. Guess what? Every time you get up in the morning, the day of the Lord comes closer, therefore you need to get together more. Right? See how that works? Gathering together. Our relationship with God is communal. We need each other. So in the faith of strife and in of our own small days of the Lord and our large day of the Lord, we need to gather together to have courage. Now, in this gathering together, there's this talk about seeking. And we're to seek two things. We're to seek righteousness and we're supposed to seek humility. Now, there are two kinds of seeking in the Hebrew. They're, they're kind of like the same seeking in the English. right? So I go seeking for my keys, and I find my keys, I'm done seeking. It is a hunt. There is an object. So there's that kind of seeking. There's another kind of seeking that's more like romance. 
You see, if a boy or a girl falls in love with another boy or a girl, like there's love happening between boy and girl, boy or girl doesn't say, I wonder where that girl is. I cannot find her. He knows where she is, and he's still seeking her, right? She knows where he is, but she's seeking him. He could be sitting on this purple couch, and she could be in the hunt for him, or vice versa, right? She's seeking him because it's a relational thing. What are they looking for? They're looking for a connectedness, okay? Well, that's the kind of seeking that God is talking about through Zephaniah. Some translators argue that this should be you should call this pressing in to righteousness or pressing on to righteousness. That this is leaning in. It's a relational seeking, right? And the thing we're called to seek is righteousness and we're called to seek humility. Now, righteousness is not the, the justice kind of thing. So when you hear righteousness in the Bible talking about God, It's not saying God is right. Yes, it is saying God is right, but it's not saying God is right. What it's saying is everything about God culturally, morally, like the kingdom of God. So if we're to seek righteousness, what we're called to do is seek this righteous, this, uh, this, the kingdom of God and the way of God. Okay. And it's a particular way that includes a set of things. Okay. So when God says, seek righteousness, he has something in mind, a way of being or a way of living. Okay? And in, in Micah 6, 8, which is another prophet, Micah kind of lays out what this would look like. And he says this in Micah 6, 8, he says, he has shown you, O mortal, that you and I, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Okay. Now, if righteousness is the way that we live out things, these are the three things that righteousness are. Number one is to do or to act justly. Some translations say to do justice. Okay. Justice is, this is a forensic thing. It's a right or wrong kind of idea. So the thing that we're called to seek as we gather is justice, right or wrong, in our community and in the world around us. So the thing that we're called to do when we gather in the face of the day of the Lord is to look at one another and say, is justice happening? And to look at our world and its political system and its presidents and its lawmakers and to say, no, this is not justice. This is justice. Our community is called to saying, no, this is right and this is wrong. Our community is called to saying, hey, the things that happen between us, they need to be in the right, not in the wrong. But we have to, it's a thing that you do. Justice is a doing thing. And it falls under a righteous way of living. The second part thing that Micah tells us that basically what righteousness is, is to love kindness or to love mercy. Right? I heard one pastor once say that he he does kindness, but he doesn't necessarily love kindness, right? And that that is that is where many of us are, right? We we're in the place of when we are asked to empty the garbage, we're like inside, and we're like, oh yeah, sure, hun, I'll, I'll empty the garbage for you, right? To do, to do kindness, 
But what we're called to is to love kindness. Well, loving kindness means that it's not about us. Right? It's not about us. It's not about us. So seeking righteousness is coming to the place where we say, okay, this life is not about us. The burden of the people on me, it's not about me. It's about offering them the mercy and kindness of God. Right? It's to love kindness. It's to do justice. And the third part of being, seeking righteousness is to walk humbly with your God. Now, we'll talk about humility in just a minute, but walking with God means that God is going somewhere. So if you don't gather and seek, you won't know where God is going. I guarantee you, if you sit in your room, it is super difficult for you to figure out where God is going. You need people to tell you where God is going, and you need to tell people where God is going. Right? Now, it says that we're to walk humbly with God, and in Zephaniah, it says we should seek humility. Now, here's the thing about humility that's super important. As a pastor, I spend a lot of time talking to people who say, oh, I don't hear the voice of God. I don't hear the voice of God. There's a reason that we are called to walk humbly with God because the opposite of humility is pride, right? And pride is all about us. Now, but the problem is that you and I are all Americans, right? Most of us. So we live in the United States, at least. We're enculturated here. And there's a thing about Americans. We think that we run everything. And we are better than everybody and everyone ought to listen to us, right? And here's the thing. Even the oppressed people in our culture think that they are better than everybody else. And we are a culture who has a very hard time hearing what God is saying because it's about us. Now, a lot of you are saying, wait a minute, it's not really, I'm not that way. Yes, you are, because, it, it, because here's the thing. If you're an anxious person, you're a proud person. You know what anxiety is? Trying to control your life, right? You're trying to be in charge, Anxiety is just about like, I'm not in charge. Ah, right. You're just scraping like going crazy, right? You're proud because you're anxious. Uh, and, and maybe you're like, well, I'm, I'm not. I, I think America's horrible and, and I, I think we do terrible things. And, and you're judgmental, right? And judgment is pride because you've decided that you can tell people what should be and how it is and you think you know, Right? You can't hear God when you're proud. That's why God says, seek humility. Because as the day of the Lord comes, as the day of the Lord comes, you want to be able to hear what he's got to say. Because as you gather and as you seek God and seek righteousness and humility, as you nurture kindness and act justly, it says something here. It says in verse, the second half of verse 3, it says, perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Here's the thing. The person who's bringing the judgment is the person who's going to protect you. And for followers of Jesus, guess where that is? Sitting at the foot of the cross. No matter what your day of the Lord looks like, no matter what the big day of the Lord looks like, it has all fallen on jesus at the cross 
the place that the reason that we're gathered together and a call to humility is that the church is pushed to the foot of the cross where the consequences of the great day of the Lord have fallen on God himself. That should give you courage. That should give you the courage that there is someone who can shelter you from the wrath of God because you've turned away and you haven't paid your tags or renewed your driver's license or paid your mortgage, right? Now, if you go onto the internet, which I know all of you do, even those of you who don't like the internet, um, which is none of you, um, you can go into Google and you can type the five ways for anything. And the five steps too, and the 10, and the 7, and the 11, and the 13, and the 22. And then when you go to those, they tell you two of them, and then you get advertisements, and you have to push the little X button, and then you push the arrow, and then it's really disappointing, and you're like, well, this is not helpful. I could have written this, right? Well, here's what I'd like to do, is I'd like to help you and give you Zephaniah's Four ways to know that you're not gathering enough. (laughs) Evidence is that maybe you aren't really in community seeking righteousness and seeking humility. So, I'm going to read to you verses 4 through 15. And this is a series of things that are going to happen to the people who have attacked Israel and spoken against God. So it starts with the Philistines. Gaza will be abandoned and Ashkelon left in ruin. At midday, Ashad will be emptied and Ekron uprooted. Woe to you who live by the sea, you Kershite people. The word of the Lord is against you. Canaan, land of the Philistines, he says, I will destroy you and none will be left. The land by the sea will become pastures, having wells for shepherds and pens for flocks. That land will belong to the remnant of the people of Judah. There they will find pasture. In the evening they will lie down in the house of Ascalon. The Lord their God will care for them. He will restore their fortunes. The next one is to Moab and Ammon. I have heard the insults of Moab and the taunts of the Amorites who insult my people and made threats against their land. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, surely Moab will become like Sodom and the Amorites like Gomorrah, a place of weeds and salt pits and wastelands forever. The remnant of my people will plunder them. The survivors of my nation will inherit their land. This is what they will get in return for their pride, for insulting and mocking the people of the Lord Almighty. The Lord will be awesome to them when he destroys all the gods of the earth. Distant nations will bow down to him, all of them in their own land. Then he says a few lines to the Cushites. You Cushites too will be slain by my sword. Then he moves on to the Assyrians. He will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh utterly desolated and dry as the desert. Flocks and herds will lie down there, creatures of every kind. The desert owl and the screech owl will roost 
in her columns. Their hooting will echo through the windows. Rubble will fill the doorways. The beams of cedar will be exposed. This is the city of revelry that lived in safety. She said to herself, I am the one, and there is none besides me. What a ruin she has become, a lair for wild beasts. All who pass by her scoff and shake their fists. So there are four groups of people with whom God says, look, here's the consequences. And the consequences are because they came against Israel. The first is the Philistines. Now, if you know anything about the Philistines, you know that they're basically takers. They take other people's land. Historically, that's what they do. They're takers. So the first thing that you could make note of in the four ways to knowing if you're in community or not is that you should take a look at how much of a taker you are. Now, what I mean by taker is maybe you're a blatant taker and that you're looking for anything and everything to help you and you have no consideration for the people who are doing that or how you might offer back to them. That's not in your mind, right? What's in your mind is, I have to survive, I must take, right? Now, here's the thing. That's a big thing, but guess what? All of us are that way. All of us have areas of our life where we're takers. Again, community confronts that when we gather and seek. But where are you on that? Are you a person who takes without thinking about what you have to offer or what you could offer? The next is the Moabites and the Amorites, and they are mockers. And they mocked God's people. They said, hey, like, you guys don't even have any, like, carvings of your God. Like, you don't know what he looks like. He's not very powerful. They mocked God. Now, the question is, are you a mocker? Now, a lot of you might say, well, no, I don't make fun of God's people. Right? I don't do that. Maybe you do. You shouldn't do that. It seems like the consequences are pretty bad. But most of us are mockers. Right? Think about it. Think about that person that you talk behind their back. Think about how you say, oh, well, that's just the way so-and-so is. Or think about the moment when you were at the dinner table and you said something just slightly in a way that kind of needled the person across and kind of from you and embarrassed them. Kind of mocked them to the point where they were exposed and embarrassed. Now, you don't do that all the time. Maybe you do it once a year. Right? But the question is, are you a mocker? Is that, is that part of your identity? Because if you are, or if it is connected, then maybe you're not actually in community. And you're not pursuing humility and righteousness in a way that is removing those things for you. The third thing is the, the Kushites. The Kushites, if you research them, I mean, they get two lines. It's like, oh, by the way, I'm, you're going to die too. But guess what? If you go and you research the Kushites, what you find out is that there isn't a lot of information about them other than they're always in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people. <laughs> That's who they are. So my question to you is, are you with the wrong people at the wrong time in the wrong place? Because it's pretty true that you'll do what the wrong people in the wrong place at the wrong time are doing if you're there. You'll do it. It doesn't matter who you are. It could be me, and I would do it. 
Right. How am I so sure? I might not do it to the extent, but be, if I spend enough time with the wrong people in the wrong time, I'm going to probably slip into it. How, in general, like, That's good. Right. Well, here's the thing about the Kushites, and here's the thing is, is it's a choice. They chose not to be with Israel. They chose to be with other people that they shouldn't have been with. And so it really comes down to this, who are you going to be with? Are you going to be with the people of God, or are you going to be with people who are running away from God? Right. So that, that's more um, what I'm saying. No, it's good. Thank you. Um, so, there's a third one. And then the fourth one, you have Nineveh. And I think actually Nineveh is one that we should all think about because it goes back to this pride thing. Nineveh really thinks that they have it together. They're the grand city. They're the city that's, that's beautiful and big and powerful. And yet what God is saying is, no, 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 I'm, I'm going to run you over. Because the Syrians were proud. They were proud. And they love destroying people. And they love to revel in them and their power. So the question becomes, where is your pride? And, and as I said earlier, when we talked about humility, like pride really isn't just being like, oh, I'm better than you. Pride comes out in, in anxiety, where we want to be in control. Like pride says, I, I've got to figure it figured out. I don't need help. Right? Humility says, I don't know what the heck I'm doing. I need help. It's being willing to be vulnerable. Now, let's go back to the statement. I think in the face of the world that we live with and in the coming judgment that we face, that we've talked about, that's laid out in Scripture, death itself, The thing that God calls us to is to gather and to seek. And the thing that he tells these different nations as they're being judged, that what's going to happen? Well, these people who are gathering and seeking are actually going to inherit the land. When the judgment is over, God's going to restore. Now, when you and I come together and we gather, really the definition of healing is protection, and restoration, a rebuilding. Okay, So how do we do that? First, I really think you should think about, and I know these are kind of harsh terms, but I'm trying to hit you with them. Ask yourself, am I a taker? Am I a mocker? Do I find myself in the wrong place with the wrong people? Am I proud? Like, because these things are going to make it really difficult for you to seek righteousness, to gather with people, and to seek humility. But let me just give you some practical things, because I know that that can sound a little overwhelming. How do you gather? It's really simple. I'll give you an assignment this week. Have dinner at your house with some people. That might just be the people who live at your house. That might be your two children. 
sit down and gather. Now, now here's the thing that I really love. I'm going to give you a practical thing that I don't do hardly ever, but it's really cool. And Rod, who's not here because he's on vacation, grew up with this. And if you love Rod's spirituality and you love the way he follows Jesus, this is why he followed Jesus. This is one of the main reasons. Every single night, he sat down to dinner with his family and his mother, or when his father was alive, pulled out the Bible. Didn't matter who was there, what company. Pulled out the Bible, read the scripture, no matter how little the kids were big, and attempted to have a conversation while they ate. But they read scripture over their family. They gathered, they read. What I'm inviting you not to do this for a lifetime, just inviting you to try to do this once this week. Sit down with your family. Maybe you all eat around the television. Turn off the TV. Get your little chairs in a circle. Read your Bible. Even if only a few things are said, you are reading the holy words over your family. Maybe you invite some friends over and you do that. You only need to do it once. Maybe it's just you and your husband and your wife. Maybe it's just you and your dog. But I'm encouraging you to make it more than that. Um, To do that. But, so that's, that's a very simple thing. Do it once this week. Gather. Read. But here's the other thing that you can do that's really practical. Don't stop coming to Sunday night. And don't stop engaging because every little thing that we do here is done for a purpose. It's done to transform your life. It's done to push against what's going on around you in the world. So don't stop it. This is the place where courage, where you're going to get courage. This is your main courage spot. So don't stop gathering. If you're not in a pilgrim group, get in a pilgrim group. If that's not really going to work for you, get in a monastic community. If you can't get into a monastic community, which is just our you know, group of people getting together to have a meal together and sing and read scripture, if you can't do those two things, find somebody in this community and say, I need you. I need you to sit with me on a weekly basis, on a bi-weekly basis, to, to teach me, to let me offer you accountability. Let's have some kind of relationship together where we can gain courage. Okay? But here's the thing about life. It doesn't happen to you. If you want something, if you want God, and I'm in you have to go get it. If you want somebody here to care for you and to teach you, go ask them. If you are like, hey, I don't know anything about parenting and I've got two kids, teach a parenting class. You don't know anything about parenting? Call up a bunch of parents and say, hey, we're going to sit down and talk about parenting. Right? You'll learn how to parent real fast. You'll get good at it. Because what happens is, is, and the reason that that we become people who are stagnant and caught up and maybe in our mocking and our taking and and our pride and all those things is because we are people who'd like to take a class. We are people who would like to to have it done for us. But it's not going to be done for you. You have to go get it. You want your marriage to be at a better place, you need to ask somebody to get into your marriage. The only way you're going to get courage to do that is be here and see that I need courage to do this. 
right? To allow the Holy Spirit to give you that. And it's 6.15. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this community. Thank you for your hard words in Zephaniah. In the midst of our own loneliness and fear and confusion, we ask that you would give us hope. I ask that in your holy name. Amen.